Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. My name is Olev. Um, thank you all for being here. I would like to apologize that I couldn't make it last week. I'm afraid I was a bit under the weather, but I'm back now, full force. Um, and we've got a great show today, so uh, let's uh, get started. Let's get right into it. Now, as those who have been listening to the previous episodes will remember, we're in the coming up to the end of our five-part series about the uh, different methodologies, the five methodologies underlying the eco-village model. Um, um, thank you all, Mykos. Nice to see you here, Shmugol Osukami. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Thank you very much, and Crimson Cloud. Oh, great to see you all. Thank you for joining me. Uh, not yet, not yet. So far, we're all okay. We're actually in a very quiet place here in Portugal. So although uh, the world seems to be going mad, our day-to-day -day life hasn't changed that much. So I'm, uh, I'm pretty pleased with the life choices that have brought me here. I have to say, it's uh, so far it's been uh, proving uh, itself to be the right decision. Uh, can you all hear me? Oh, okay. I'm assuming it's just then Fox on. Yeah, I think everything's all right with me. So, this week is keyline farming, a subject that I feel very strongly about. I think from the moment I first uh, heard about and started reading, it really grabbed me. And I've been talking about it for a long time. In fact, I was actually on um, Pensif's podcast uh, a I can't remember what it was, a few months ago, I think, by now, probably about four or five months ago. And I spoke about it a little bit over there um, and explained a bit about it. And for those who don't know, I'll start with a rather general overview. Um, if there are any problems with the sound or anything, please let me know in chat. Um, but I think everything looks good with me over here. So keyline farming is obviously a method of farming. It specifically was developed for grazing land and it was developed in Australia where they have a rather erratic uh, rainfall, which means that it rains uh, for very, very short periods of time with rather large volumes. So most of the year it's very dry in certain areas. And then when the rain season comes, a lot of it comes all at once. And so keyline farming is a method that was developed in order to try and manage this overflow of uh, rainwater that would come and be able to utilize that same water and make it last basically throughout the year. And so it, it does uh, involve a lot of different parts in this key line farming and uh, I'll get into it a bit more later what the uh, modern applications or what it looks like today. But um, yes, absolutely. As Michael says, the overflows uh, can really be detrimental to everything around. And so we'll get into the problems that it actually solves. But I'll mention just a few key ideas um, and really explain a little bit about what keyline is for those who've never heard of it. So the term keyline um, is actually derived from a different term uh, called a key point. And so in any sort of valley 
when you look at the shape of the land and the valleys that sort of lead down the valleys and ridges that lead into larger valleys in the bottom that eventually these larger valleys lead into whatever they be rivers that eventually get up in the uh, end up in the ocean this pattern um, the land follows a certain pattern that you can recognize and that is that at some point from the highest point to the lowest point uh, around about a third of the way down more or less the angle of the land the slant of the land actually uh, levels off and it becomes a much more straight area and then as it carries down it, it uh, becomes steep more steep again and uh, the inventor of key lime farming whose name was P.A. Yeomans noticed this sort of leveling in the middle and um, his story is rather an interesting one so I'd like to take a few minutes to just talk about him but I'll just finish up with a key line that this point that he noticed which was more flat in the middle he could draw this line imaginary line going all down the valley and he would use that line to guide um, the water both to guide it in terms of uh, keeping it level and not too steep so it doesn't go too fast and always keep it moving using gravity so it doesn't have to use pumps he would use this key line across the valley to draw the water the rainwater to where it was needed and so that's a very very general overview um, of what this actual term key line means and what uh, P.A. Yeomans was using it for um, he developed an entire theory around this point which was meant to to do one thing really and that was to boost the fertility of the land um, yes I'm just uh, I'll, I'll get into exactly the whole system but it's very it, it utilizes canals it utilizes uh, large dams and reservoirs to collect them and it really uses uh, flood irrigation more than anything and this was in the original system that P.A. Yeomans was talking about and yes the it's actually one word key line if you look up key line farming uh, you'll find a lot of things uh, today and I'll actually try and get a link up as well to one of the uh, the more modern sites but basically this idea of key line was to take the water from the highest point move it so that you can store it uh, in the highest pot as much, uh, point as much as you can and then when you have too much water to store in this first dam you lead it and take it onward to a, a second dam and that would fill up and work your way down the land for however big it was now obviously in Australia this was around the 1930s 40s 50s um, they had different different amounts of land to what I'm used to coming from a very small country like Israel they have thousands of you know, hectares I mean it's crazy but uh, he would utilize this water and you use this method to to irrigate his entire pasture lands with only uh, gravity driven basically no pumping so no electricity and no excess um, no water being brought in from outside the property so purely for rainwater this was only being used I might add for irrigation so this wasn't the water that he was using in the house if I'm not mistaken from what I saw um, 
his house i think was connected to the mains this was a long time ago so back then there wasn't much of this off-grid he was just a normal farmer and his story is actually rather interesting so i'd like to take a few minutes to talk about him uh, before i carry on with explaining a little bit more about the key line um, the key line farming method so Pierre Yeomans was actually not a farmer to begin with. He was a mining engineer. Um, and so his experience and his uh, field of expertise was really dealing with um, digging holes into the mountain, uh, digging these mines in a safe way. And a big part of that, a big part of the engineering process was actually taking care and dealing with the water um, water that was coming down rain obviously if you're digging a mine then the water will flood it very easily and so you're constantly trying to use these dams and to guide the water away so that it doesn't fill up and so that was really the experience that he came from and uh, tragically for them but uh, in the end it was good for for us um, his wife's brother passed away who was a farmer and he had no other family and so his wife and him P.A. Yeomans uh, inherited this I think it was 2,000 hectares if I'm not mistaken a vast amount of land if you don't know it's just unimaginably large you know these like acres upon acres upon acres of land and so they just inherited this land they didn't really have any experience in farming they didn't really know what to do with it and um, it was sort of a side project, I think, but P.A. Yeomans really enjoyed uh, taking long walks on the property and just walking around and he would walk for hours and the first few years he didn't do anything, he didn't plant anything, but he would just walk around in the rain especially and it was through these long walks that he would take that he would notice the way that the water would flow. Now. I do want to say that obviously this system was around in one way or another from very ancient times. This is a very, a very basic, um, primitive in a good sense, simple method that's easy to employ without much um, physical labor and without much energy and excess technology that's needed. So it was something that obviously the, uh, the old farmers were very much well aware of. But at the time in Western agriculture, let's say, um, this was really one of the first books that were written about farming techniques in general. Um, this was really before the invention of the, you know, the, the academic field of uh, how agriculture and, and utilizing this rainwater was done. And P.A. Yeomans sort of not being a professional farmer to begin with, but developed this method and put it down to writing and really uh, inspired in a lot of ways uh, the creators of permaculture who came afterwards, Bill Mollison and uh, David Holmgren. Uh, Bill, Mollison, Bill Mollison was actually a good friend of P.A. Yeomans and they spoke about it a lot. And uh, it's interesting that I started the series with permaculture as being this sort of very broad very inclusive methodology but uh, finishing with keyline the two are very much interconnected now i would like to say that one thing that pa yeoman doesn't talk about much and obviously i think back then it was less of an issue 
are a lot of the other subjects that we talked about. Um, basically, anything that has to do with growing your food. Pierre Yeomans was very much into grazing and proper grazing and grazing to help the land. But he, speak, he doesn't speak at all about vegetables, about gardens, about planting, about forests, etc., etc. Um, so it is a very specific method. But when it comes to managing rainwater, um, I think that it really is beneficial to start at the beginning. And the beginning seems to be for us in these modern times, P.A. Yeoman and his key line farming. So that's a little bit about him. He was a very impressive man and he went on to invent a lot of different things and he invented a lot of the parts that he needed for his system. So very interesting if you'd uh, like to check him out. But nonetheless, the system that he has left us um, is even more, I think, enticing because it really epitomizes this use of the resources that we have in the most efficient way with the least amount of maintenance. And so, according to uh, P.A. Yeoman, he could store enough water on his land to last two years of drought, so two years without rain, which is in, Aust in Australia in those temperatures is, is rather impressive. And you can see he would do this with these vast, vast dams um, and reservoirs that he would build all along in the in his land. Now, for them, <laughs> whenever he speaks about it, I think back in his time, uh, the way that he describes it, the government was very much in these massive centralized dams. So these dams that would really be like uh, kilometers or miles across and would store millions of gallons. I mean, un unimaginable numbers. And those really posed uh, a very big threat on a lot of things on the ecosystems around, but also the risk of them if something went wrong. Um, they were very dangerous, rather dangerous. And I think I think things have changed today, whether it's uh, there are still these large reservoirs that people use, but they're much safer and they're much farther away from populated areas, which I think back then was less common. And so when P.A. Yeomans was suggesting this, he was suggesting it as a small scale reservoir interconnected water system that could be set up on private property instead of we instead of having these massive governmental million dollar projects that would really have a huge impact on the environment he was suggesting a small scale system that could be implemented on any farm in uh, in australia and so it's a very interesting idea and i want to talk a little bit about the key concept that underlies his thinking and how he sort of went about it. And so he was he noticed that naturally in any area you have a wet area and these are sort of the valleys as we said before where the the, the land dips and the water naturally gravitates towards and we have the drier areas, which are the ridges, the sort of hilly parts, the ones that poke up. And he saw that all across the land, you have these ridges that are always drier and these valleys that are always wetter. And you couldn't have many different things growing. Uh, the dry was too dry, the wet was too wet. And he decided or he understood that what needs to be done is to get the water to go from the wet area to the dry area. And how do you do that without using any pumps? So this was the idea 
of guiding the water from the valleys from where they naturally want to fall and drawing them uh, not exactly horizontally but on contour meaning the same height um, across the land. I say not horizontally because it doesn't always look horizontal when you're looking at the side of a hill. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily look like it's a level line but you want it to be level in the sense that the water will constantly be going from the high point where it's uh, storing all across to the side and all the across when it's going it's actually allowed um, to to sink in in certain areas now with key line farming he doesn't speak a lot about swales instead what he would do is he would have the water sort of flood irrigate so um, uh, fill up these ditches that were dug these canals and then they would overflow equally and the water would roll over and they would irrigate the land that was underneath and so this system that he developed eventually uh, led him to understand that he called, um, he invented this scale called the scale of permanence. And he decided that this term permanence was what really mattered because when you come to design a land, um, what you want to design first are the things that are most difficult to change or the things that change the least. And so he called it the scale of permanence. He would categorize the different parts of the farm with the least amount of change to the most. And so in his uh, scale of permanence, uh, the first thing is climate. Now, obviously, climate is something that does change and from day to day, etc. But with climate, he meant the general climate that was there that has been shaping the land for however long it has been. And so the climate in terms of the range of temperatures, the amount of moisture and the severity of the sun, etc., etc. Although these things are fluctuating throughout the year, nonetheless, there are different climates in different areas. And these seem to be the most stable based on whereabouts in the globe you are. And so after that, he came to land shape which is the second most permanent thing, the hardest thing to change, although as humans we can change uh, the land shape, let's say more than we can change the climate. Not get into any discussion about whether we can change the climate, but uh, we can definitely, it's definitely easier and more accessible to change the land. And so that's the second uh, on the scale. And third is water. And so water means both the amount that comes and the sources that you can uh, get um, whereabouts on the land if you're surrounded by hills that are higher uh, going you know down towards you if you're on a river etc etc and also the direction of the water and so noticing where the water is um, on the land really helps you to start seeing the the shape and start seeing what the design should be for this water system and <clears throat> sorry so we have climate land water and after that come the trees and so the trees are one of the more permanent things in terms of establishing a tree having it grow once you've planted it obviously we can always uh, cut it down or even pull it out 
but it is more permanent um, than the things that come after, but it's less permanent than, let's say, water sources, which are out of our control even more. And so after trees come buildings, and after buildings come paths, and after paths come fences. And so this layering of the different parts means that you want to plant your trees based on where the water is. And you want to plan your buildings based around where the trees need to be planted. So very often we have a building that's put in the place with the best view and then the trees will be planted around it to make it nice but that's not necessarily the best place for the trees and that means that to water them or you're going to be have to you're going to have to be uh, fighting against the natural tendency uh, sometimes obviously and so PA Yeomans really encouraged us to do this by what is easiest to uh, sorry, what's the most difficult to change and let that decide the things that come afterwards. Once you know where the water is, you can know where you want the trees to be. That will tell you where the buildings can be and obviously uh, the roads will follow connecting where you want. And so, uh, let me just uh, respond to a few things in chat. Anticommy Blood says terraforming is something we as humans are capable of. We don't need some atmosphere generators to cleanse land of scarring. Absolutely, exactly. But terraforming, relatively speaking, is a much more permanent thing. It would be easier to move a tree, to cut it down, to plant a tree, than it is to do any kind of earthworks or to really change the, the land. So it's definitely something that we can do, we can influence, but it's something that takes much, much longer and is harder for us to do in terms of the time. Um, yes, yeah, sometimes the arrangement of the trees to one another, block wind, uh, yeah, I mean, increase, but exactly. Although what you're talking about here is not something that uh, P.A. Yeoman spoke about, really. He didn't talk about guilds or multi-purposing um, the different parts, although I'm sure he did it naturally. But that is something that sort of permaculture and permaculture design is really much more about. Keyland farming is very much focused on, of course, you need to have the trees, but why are the trees there? The trees are there so that they can use the water that's coming down, so that they can hold the soil and prevent desertification, and so that the trees will be um, shading the area of the pool so that you minimize the uh, ev evaporation. All of these things are there to channel the water to the grazing pastures and increase the fertility of the land there. So it's absolutely right, your comment. Um, it is important to say that he was, yeah, he was very much focused on the waterways. And so um, I've actually mentioned something here, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about it, which is the term desertification. Now, this is something that's really become an issue today. I, I wouldn't say <laughs> following recent events and what 2020 has been like so far, um, might not be at the top of our list, but nonetheless, it is a problem that all over the world we can see uh, countries and places are facing. And very importantly, it is a problem that is relatively easy to fix and to reverse. And I think the combination of these two things is something that's very, very frustrating for me um, to see 
many different countries, many different places. Obviously, this was something that was talked about uh, 60, 70, nearly 80 years ago. Uh, and definitely written extensively about uh, and had experiments on 30 years ago uh, and, and more actually, the 1970s, so that's what, 50 years ago. So it's been around for a long, long time. For those who have absolutely no idea uh, what I'm talking about, the term desertification, I'm actually, I'm not sure who coined it. If anyone knows in chat, let me know. But it means turning a land into a desert. And so we think of deserts and of forests of being sort of um, premeditated and things that sort of have developed. But um, a lot of the times, deserts that we see around us today were actually created or at least the result of human intervention. And so desertification is a process that happens especially easily once you uproot enough trees. And so the trees that are on the land are really guarding it in a lot of different ways. They're providing the environment for the ecosystem to live, for all of the different animals and insects and plants to thrive around them. And they are literally holding the soil, protecting it from uh, the rain uh, and all of these different things that are sort of guarding and keeping the situation the same or even improving it over time. Once you remove those trees, even if you leave everything else and all you do is cut down the tree, um, a few things start to happen. First of all, as was mentioned, there's a wind factor that comes in. Um, the rain that starts falling, uh, if it is falling on direct earth, it actually sort of shatters the pieces of earth. It's fun to think of it, but um, what happens when it rains on bare soil is that it actually breaks the soil up, right, uh, lifting the clay particles highest than all because they're the lightest. And so they land on the top. And eventually what happens, and you can see this actually happening on dry soil, um, this layer of clay seals up the earth so that it doesn't, it can't actually absorb any of the rain that comes afterwards. And that's really the, the, this process of desertification. Once the soil is bare and the wind has eroded the topsoil and the rain has come onto it, um, it's sealed up and now it actually can't absorb any moisture, plants can't grow there, and it started turning into a desert, quite literally. And so this is very sad because a number of things happen. Uh, not only do we lose the life that, that could have lived there, obviously the productivity and the fertility, but it actually increases the dangers um, of when there is a large amount of rain that comes, it turns into these flash floods. And for those who have never lived in an area, um, this happens in deserts anywhere that they have these sort of downpours, very, very, very quickly the water accumulates because it doesn't drain anywhere. There's no place for it to be absorbed. And so it just starts collecting into these huge volumes that are running very, very quickly across the land. And it can be very, very dangerous. Um, back in Israel, this would happen almost every year. Uh, every winter down south in the deserts, we had a main road that goes across. 
and uh, this huge flash flood would come and every year people would get hurt or they'd have to close the road. Ah, Soundwave Photon, thank you very much for, for joining until now. Oh, good luck with your second job. Um, yes, and so it's, it's just very frustrating because there is a solution to this problem. And this problem is a dangerous one. It claims lives all across the world in these places, hikers who aren't ready. This, uh, If you've seen um, 127 Hours, the film portrays a flash flood. It's, it's actually his uh, imagination, spoiler alert, but um, it shows it very well how quickly these sort of nooks and crevices can fill uh, with water. So it really is a dangerous phenomenon that happens all over the world and it all happens for the same reason the land cannot absorb the rainwater. The rainwater usually comes very quickly, very large volumes and it just has to carry the dirt with it, the silt. It's a whole mess all across the line, all the way down to the uh, earth that's dragged from the topsoil into the oceans. So. What can we do to stop this? What can we do to fix this? Well, there's many different methods, but obviously we'll talk about Keyline first. And I think P.A. Yeomans was one of the first to address the problem. He didn't call it desertification. I'm pretty sure he never mentions the word, but what he discovered was that when you have this state of very, very poor soil, meaning very arid and very uh, um, sealed, soil that doesn't allow any water to come in uh, he saw to it that you have to till you have to really uh, scratch the earth and he in fact invented a specific uh, time i think the term is that you connect to the tractor um, i should say that i personally have a little bit of a problem with using uh, tractors and generally using uh, gasoline-powered uh, machines, um, but in the interest of Keyline and P.A. Yeomans, obviously he invented, I can't remember, something like 30 different attachments for all of his different needs and different things. And this was a very good, I think if you're going to use a tractor and uh, tilling, then this was a very uh, good way of doing it. So he wouldn't till the land uh, every season, obviously. He would talk about a regime of doing it once every year in the beginning, if it was a very, very bad state. And then after two years, uh, once every two years. And I think if I'm not mistaken, after four years, so after another twice, um, sort of, uh, usually it doesn't need, but if it did need, they're doing it once more after that, and then that would be it, you really wouldn't need to do it again. And the tilling, the, 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 the piece that he would use would be a very, very straight and small piece, so it'd make a very, very um, small hole and cut through the top layers, but at the bottom, about, you know, a meter or so down, um, it would go out to the sides. And so underneath the earth, it would rip all that area that was very, very low. And so when the rain would come, it would have this very, very small, narrow hole to go into. And once the rain came into the, la uh, into the earth, it would spread out to these sides where he would till. 
And that was a very different method because then you're not actually disturbing the topsoil that much. You're not actually ripping through all of the earth. You're just making this sort of hole, this sort of uh, cave underneath that the water can fill up. And then that water will be both soaked up to the higher levels as well and be allowed to uh, fill up and uh, uh, soak into the earth around. And then as the earth absorbs more and more water every year, um, it becomes able to absorb more and more. So it's the opposite effect of desertification. I guess reforesting is a sort of way of calling it, but uh, sorry for those noises. Okay, so that's a little bit about key line tilling. Now, for my personal uh, morality, morality, I would like to mention no-till. No-till, um, no-digging garden is a, a method, I think, that was started really by Masanobu Fukuoka, who I spoke about uh, in the last episode. And his method was really natural farming, which was doing as little as possible and really trying to disturb the earth as little as possible. And this invites a certain tension that we can see, uh, that I've seen in, in different people, and especially in the more modern age, it seems that the postmodern problem of being able to see two truths uh, has not skipped the, uh, the agricultural world. And on the one hand, we have this very clear side where we want to disturb nature as little as possible. We want to leave as small of an imprint as possible, as small of a a carbon footprint or any other and we really want to be as little a bad influence on our environment as possible and yet on the other hand um, as soon as you are living in an area let alone working it or trying to plant you are in fact disturbing it and these two are obviously coexisting all the time and the idea is to try and find the balance between them so for Pierre Yeomans, it was clear that both using the tractor and um, tilling once every few years to get the earth started was really worth whatever sacrifice it might be uh, in order to increase the fertility, to provide more area for organisms to live and to have better uh, crops um, and results in general. And so that, I think, is one side of the spectrum. Um, for me personally, I believe that whatever I can do to minimize uh, the impact, is it's a beautiful idea because it really minimizes my work as well. And so obviously, if there is a desert that's being created on the land, and I can see this, then there is a very, very a good chance that I need to do something drastic like tilling in order to prevent it. However, if I can get away with planting a lot of pioneer species or planting deep-rooting uh, trees that can do that for me, and I can get a crop out of it as well, then it really makes a lot more sense, uh, for me at least, to, to, to be able to use that method. So it is obviously very much a choice and to each their own. Um, I know a lot of people that I respect very much who insist on using the machines and who insist on it, uh, basically investing in the beginning 
to do it as quickly as possible so that in the future we can get to a place where we're self-sustainable um, as quickly as possible. So to each their own. Um, yes, oh, I can see a few things in chat. Monoculture farming equals bad. That is pretty much summarizes everything in my mind. Absolutely. Uh, it's interesting. Maybe I'll get into it later. But monoculture is, is a very, very broad term. And it, and it can be, I can see it, the, the mentality also being used in a lot of vegetable gardens where you just have this sort of square that's one specific vegetable altogether instead of this idea of guilds. Anyway, monoculture farming equals bad. I love it. Absolutely. Um, Michael said you tried that one too, was harder for you and I didn't get immune to it. Oh yes, the natural farming Fukuoka's. Yes, it's, it's a very weird mentality and he says, and this is usually true, the first years of doing it, you're sort of also uh, detoxing the land. It's going through withdrawal. So the first year, you usually get much less of a produce and uh, a crop, um, especially with land that was with chemical fertilizers that now loses that. Obviously, it takes a while for it to get back to its uh, homeostasis, the balance. But then once you do, the work becomes less and less, it becomes, the crop becomes greater and greater with uh, less input uh, on all sides, both financial work and uh, chemicals, etc. So, uh, yes, I, uh, you know, I, we, have a <laughs> we have a YouTube channel as well, and all of these things that I'm talking about theoretically, uh, we do plan on implementing. Uh, it will take a little while, but we are doing the best. So uh, if you want to stay uh, tuned for that, uh, you're, you're more than welcome. Uh, oh, Cole, thank you so much. I, uh, I don't think I've seen you before. Uh, <laughs> use farm.bot. I, I don't know if that's a joke, but there are a lot of robots that are being used now in farming. I've seen some very interesting things for seeding, for, you know, watering, obviously all automatic. So... It, it, there's a lot of talk about um, using technology to, to farm, basically, which uh, for me is just very strange because it is a very, very spiritual practice. So I think working with the land and um, really being there is a, is a very big part, for me at least. Oh. Uh, humanity's first robot farmers for help. Yes, ah, absolutely. Yes, I, I've seen that one. It's a, it's <laughs> it's very interesting, and I I definitely don't uh, have anything bad to say about it. I'm just saying that for me personally, I really love getting down in the dirt. But if you're looking to grow your own vegetables and you're currently working and you don't have time to do it, it's amazing. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. I've seen some videos and it's really it's very interesting. Um, Yes, the ah, Michael CAI, it's, uh, the idea of non-disturbing was foreign. Production, yeah, I got several acres sat aside an acre for that. Right, right, right. So you did it on a small scale. I mean, and these things also definitely require a certain amount of trial and error and getting to learn everything, your land, the species, the water. I mean, it really is such an endless field with so many parameters that it, it has to be some sort of guiding, I think, uh, philosophy where you really 
decide, okay, what I want is absolute maximum production as quickly as possible. I want to make a quick buck. Or what I want is the strongest species that will be withstanding any cold or any heat. Or what I, you know, and then once you have that guidance, that will help steer all of your decisions. And so I think any of these five methodologies, food forests or natural farming or key line farming, uh, any of them are a good place to start and a good thing to do. I don't think anyone is better or worse or obviously there's no right answer. Me personally, I found these five to work very well together and that's what I would like to implement together. And that's again not to say that those are the best. So it's a very, very open field. It's very much, I think, about learning and, you know, just really going on this process, not trying to be the best, not trying to design the perfect garden, but really trying to live this philosophy and to really experience it on all levels. Yes, as you said, body health, it's, it's a very, very deep thing to grow your own food and especially to sort of grow your own things and live a life that you have watched and cultivated throughout is a very powerful and very ancient part of ourselves. Um, in fact, uh, let me look at the time. Yes, I can see we've got a few. Okay. I want to talk about a few more things and then I hope I'll have time to talk a little bit about next week. So, We've spoken about key line and about PA Yeomans. Um, I actually posted a link before, which is to a website called theregrarians.org, O-R-G. And, oh, I do apologize. And uh, they are, I would say, the continuation of PA Yeomans' work. And it's uh, two people, or it's not two, but it's uh, quite a few, a team, uh, Darren, Darren Doherty, I think is pronounced, who is Australian, um, is the founder and the key figure. And he has actually joined forces with um, PA uh, Yeoman's son. Uh, I think his name is Darren as well, if I'm not mistaken. I do apologize, but... Uh, the two of them sort of have taken this. Darren studied Keyline for a long time and met with Pierre Yeomans and has been doing it for a long time as well and met uh, a lot of permaculture people. And today, Keyline farming, um, it's not really called Keyline. They've actually called themselves the Regrarians, which is, you know, regeneration and re-agrarianism, uh, going back to ancient methods and revitalizing it and making it more sustainable. So it's grown from just this uh, flood irrigation method to something much more holistic that talks about permaculture as well, that talks about um, housing and placement and talks about a lot of different things. Uh, and so I think that it's only fair to mention that they are, from what I've seen, I was rather upset when I saw how little, uh, how, how little this method was uh, being talked about and uh, how few people today sort of really have heard about it. So finding these people, this organization really made me uh, very happy. So I'd like to share it with anyone who's interested. They do all sorts of things, surveying and 
um, all sorts of different projects that they can uh, work with different uh, farms and they sell a handbook which I'm very interested in uh, purchasing when it's out uh, which talks about all these things. It's basically like an updated scale of permanence uh, including a lot of different things, energy and all, all different parts. Very, very interesting. So I'm not, <laughs> it sounds like I'm endorsed in some way. I, they've never heard of me. Uh, I've paid for the uh, few chapters that I've ordered, but uh, I really love them. So if you're interested in any of this, this is the sort of modern type of it. So I have a few more things that I've actually written down, but I think I'll take the last 15 minutes um, to talk a little bit about what's coming next. So obviously uh, we've, we are all experiencing uh, these Corona days. Um, technically you so far, those who are listening, you are all Corona survivors um, so far. And the events, I, I have to say, as I've mentioned a few times before, in the beginning, I didn't quite realize, grasp how far-fetching this was, is. And over time, I realized, as many people I think did, that this is actually uh, quite serious and really shaping society uh, in ways that not much has over the last few, let's say, years, decades. Um, I'm not going to say good or bad because that's not my focus for, for, for what I want to say, but it, had, it, it made me think. And now that I've finished speaking a little bit about the eco village and a little bit about the methods i felt that my knowledge and uh, um, really experience could be better used in other avenues and so when i first approached rondon about this podcast and told him what i wanted to do uh, he told me to think of a name and i <laughs> i took that way too seriously and i think after a week of thinking about it he said like you know don't worry worst case scenario you can always change it it's just better it's like <laughs> now you tell me so i decided on the name the discomfort zone because a this was something that was outside of my comfort zone uh, to a certain degree and although it's something that i wanted to do and something that i want to share with people it is certainly uh, not yeah not in my comfort zone it's not something that i'm really uh, very experienced with being able to do this for, you know, every week and etc. But the other reason I wanted to call it the discomfort zone was for the audience as well. And I would like to take this uh, stage um, to be able to take my listeners with me onto a journey that might not make them always be comfortable, but should uh, enlighten them to things that they may not have known. And so with that being said, uh, starting next week, it's going to be a little bit of a different format for the podcast. Um, for those who don't know, who haven't heard, I have been studying quite a few methods and alongside, I'd say, all of this farming and agriculture is sort of the practicality, I think, for getting out of this system for uh, a, a healthier and better future. But all of that technique and practicality came after many, many years of researching the problem 
or the problems that we are facing today in modern life. This is obviously Corona as well, but going all across the gamut of our health problems, uh, the city energy crisis, monetary system. I mean, obviously the list goes on and on. And for me personally, these problems, these issues that we are all facing on a daily basis seemed completely illogical. The more I read and understood that these farming techniques were available, that we could grow food for free, that nobody really needed to charge for any of these basic human rights like water or education, I realized that there was a big, big problem that didn't seem to get addressed. Everyone was so caught up in having to wake up and go to their job that they never really stopped to think about it. And it was very frustrating for a long, long time. Um, until I really started getting deep into things and I started researching the uh, underbelly, the subtext, the occult and esoteric parts of society that seem to be so quickly overlooked um, by everyone who I looked up to or <laughs> needed, was supposed to look up to. My parents, my teachers, all of my uh, elders um, never spoke about corruption any more than, oh, you know, it's corrupt, or never spoke about whistleblowers who had exposed you know, CIA, black ops, or, you know, I mean, the list of dangerous, seedy, you know, really uh, inhuman uh, acts that have been covered up and done behind dark doors are, I think, quite prevalent today to, to be worthy of attention. And so uh, it actually led me on quite a dark and uh, uh, un uncomfortable <laughs> road um, in which I was discovering more and more. And the road was actually uh, twofold. Interestingly enough, I didn't realize that these two sides were connected. But I knew that these were two things that were very, very interesting for me. One of these was the monetary system, how it works, how it evolved, where it came from. And the other was, let's say, spirituality and religion. Uh, this whole side that seems to have really changed in the industrial scientific age, but once used to rule the hearts and minds of all men and women. Um, and these two paths that seemed very, very distinct somehow seem to converge far, far back in history. And although today, well, <laughs> uh, to a certain extent, we're told that they are separate, um, back, back, going way, way back, thousands of years, they weren't so separated at all. And so the path really did surprise me when I discovered that these two very uh, separate subjects that I've been researching were overlapping more and more and were tying into each other more and more. And I, uh, I was literally quite petrified by the end by what I had discovered. Um, I was quite depressed for quite a long time and it really took me a good while to manage to wrap my head around it, to manage to understand it, to put it into some kind of context. And so it was over this time that I <laughs> 
became uh, very passionate about sharing this knowledge with people. And uh, that's when it really started to become uh, very frustrating because um, people weren't willing to hear, um, to put it lightly. And I won't mention all of the <laughs> years and years of trying to explain these things to people and just getting this sort of blank stare of like, okay, sure, but so what? Um, but eventually, uh, I think I sort of gave up to a certain degree and certainly have never mentioned it in such a public forum where I know that uh, different people can listen. Um, and then Corona happened and... I haven't seen as serious a threat to uh, civil liberties uh, in my lifetime personally where I am and certainly not in a global level uh, as we see today. Whether or not doesn't matter what you believe, the fact of the matter is that once a global uh, lockdown is in place, that is technically the suspension of human rights and countries have to declare a state of emergency in order to legally do it. So once that happened, I decided that I can't actually uh, bide my time any longer. And if I believe, as I do, uh, that I know something about the situation at large, that I know something about the sense behind all of this chaos, um, that I would like to do my best to try and share it with as many people as possible. And so I, <laughs> I would like to say that I completely understand losing any and all of you uh, to go on because this is a big change of direction. Uh, don't feel bad at all. I accept it. It's something that I have to do regardless. And as long as the stream bot will be there listening, I'll, uh, I'll carry on talking. Um, so, okay. Oh, there's a long message from my cross in chat. I just want to read through. I'll read it aloud for those who are listening. Uh, you also, I also think it's outside of many comfort zones because like farming and this type of conversation is so important to our health and survival. We focus on grocery stores as the key idea to survive. Absolutely. And the coronavirus, which I've been talking about these things for a long, long time. Not just me, obviously. I, for one moment, uh, please let me say clearly, none of this is mine. I didn't invent anything. I didn't research anything. All I did was read people who were investigators, you know, ex-military, ex-CIA, who wrote about these things, who investigated. So I do want to say that this is in no way my own personal idea. I'm just relaying the message. But I was saying for years, as people know, that centralization has a huge vulnerability. And that is that it's much easier to collapse. If one part of it goes wrong, that usually is enough to collapse the whole thing. And so, yes, grocery stores indeed are <laughs> a scary thought today. Um, people come to your farm to eat for free. I never worry once about needing money from them to survive. Wonderful. Wow. That is, that is amazing to hear. That state of abundance, that abundance mentality is, uh, is something very, very powerful, I think. Really can change. Um, yeah, indoctrination into the system and people will just go with the flow. Yes. I mean, I, I'll be honest. Talking about this, there's a term um, 
that's obviously very prevalent among conspiracy theorists, and that is sheeple, which is this herd mentality where people are so used to going along and don't want to go against the grain. You have awful things happen in the name of, you know, solidarity, as it were. Um, I would like to say that from what I personally have read and seen, there is a very good reason that people behave in this way. And that is not only that we have been taught to behave this way by society, have been indoctrinated, but in fact, we have evolved in this way. And to some extent, in my, personally, in my personal belief, we were created in this way. And it doesn't even matter if you treat that creation as physical or metaphorical. When you tell someone, and we can see this in the stories uh, throughout history, going as far back as you want, if you tell people that they are meant to follow a single supreme leader, whether that leader be a priest, a god, another human, uh, you know, a king, a general, that is constantly the idea. Um, there's a wonderful book, which I think I might have to finish with because, yes, we haven't got much time. But there is a wonderful book by uh, William Reich, Wilhelm Reich, uh, called The Mass Psychology of Fascism. Really an amazing read if you ever get a chance. I, uh, oh, powerful, powerful. But he deconstructs this whole philosophy and idea, and he says it starts with the family unit. Now, obviously, the family unit is something that has changed over time. And if you see tribal societies, the family unit is very, very different. It's much more egalitarian. Women's uh, positions in that society are usually, not always, but usually much better than they were in, say, you know, these uh, empire times, etc. And it's just very, very fascinating, I think, to, to see that in our society, this patriarchy, this concept of father knows best was something that's instilled from day one, from the beginning in all of us. And mother is, I mean, obviously I'm not saying this and not today, but mother used to be the voice of father. He would speak through her as it were. She was his emissary. And this concept of having a one supreme leader who is never wrong, infallible, who must be followed to death, starts in the home, gets solidified in the consciousness of children, and then continues throughout school, throughout the army, throughout the job with the boss, etc., etc. We see it throughout life. And that mentality of following that supreme leader, I believe, is something that was instilled way, way, way back in our history, uh, and for very good reason, to do exactly what we see happening today. So, that's it for me for this week. Join me again next week as we'll be going on. Thank you very, very much, everyone who joined, and uh, see you next time. Thank you.